0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll visit Mission San Luis in Tallahassee, originally established by the Spanish in the 1630s.
1: It's the council house that sticks out in your mind, because you may have seen the fort in, in a St. Augustine or other forts. You may have seen other churches. You may have seen little Waddle and Dobbs Spanish houses. But this is the one that's going to really um, not your socks off.
0: Remembering Edgartown in southeast Florida. I didn't want it all to be
2: perfect. I wanted it to look like it had been here 100 years. I like to say that what I did here was a preservation, not really a restoration.
0: As the space shuttle program comes to an end, we'll look at the history of Cape Canaveral. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. In the early 1700s, the English began destroying Catholic missions in Florida as a way of undermining Spanish control. With an English attack just two days away, the Spaniards and their Apalachee neighbors evacuated the women and children from Mission San Luis in present-day Tallahassee. On July 1, 1704, the Spanish and their Apalachee allies burned down Mission San Luis to keep it from being captured by the English. Although the first written mention of Mission San Luis by name is from 1647, it was most likely one of the first Apalachee missions established by the Spanish in the 1630s. Karen Stanford is museum program supervisor at Mission San Luis. As Stanford explains, when the Spanish arrived in Florida in the 1500s, the Apalachee had a very successful and advanced society with ceremonial centers and farming villages.
1: And they were known by Indian tribes in South Florida and elsewhere as rich and powerful, and a lot of it had to do with the location here in the Red Hills of Tallahassee. Uh, The soil's extremely good for growing food, and so you had a... um, um, a group of Indians who didn't have to travel with uh, the game, who could remain in place, have enough food, and also have enough food to, you know, and in later years when the Spanish were here, they basically kept St. Augustine alive. They were the breadbasket for La Florida. So it's a very important thing. They had that resource, and they were also fierce warriors, and they were known, known as that too. In
0: 1633, two friars established the first missions in Appalachie and Spanish soldiers soon followed. Apalaches became citizens of Spain by accepting Christianity. By 1656, Mission San Luis was moved to its present location along with the seat of Apalachee power, solidifying a religious, military, and economic alliance. In the final decades of the 1600s, Spanish families joined the settlement of 1,400 Apalaches at Mission San Luis. In 1704, the mission was evacuated and destroyed by its own people.
1: They knew that the end was near. They'd been seeing it um, since 1702 when uh, the Siege of St. Augustine. And they had heard news about other missions being uh, uh, captured, uh, the priests and the Indians being put to death or sent into slavery. They knew that they are being the last one because they were more defensible. We had the Fort and the Castillo here. But one interesting thing about that, in the spring of 1704, the records show that for the first time in thousands of years, the Appalachian did not plant corn. So they knew they wouldn't be here to – they could be here to sow it but not to reap. So that's a really telling thing that, you know, that they literally knew that Something was going to happen and it wasn't going to be good for them. So, what they did in advance of uh, Governor Moore and his Creek allies, they burned the entire mission to the ground. Uh, the Castillo is probably the last building burned. And they, uh, many of the, mo- most, all of the Spanish went to St. Augustine. Some went toward Pensacola. Uh, some Appalachians went with the Spanish. Some Appalachians uh, defected to the British because they felt, well, you know, that they, they're their interests weren't protected by the Spanish, uh, and eventually the natives who went to the wet uh, to the east to St. Augustine, when uh, Florida was turned over to the English, they probably went with the Spanish to Cuba, and disappeared. We know that a small group of Indians from uh, Appalachia and from this hillside went to um, Pensacola, then to Mobile, which was French and Catholic, and then proceeded off to uh, Louisiana.
0: The dispersed Apalachee were lost to history until the 1990s when parish records were uncovered in Louisiana, identifying a small group of people there as being descendants of the Apalachee from Mission San Luis. The site itself was one of the first to be placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1966, along with the Castillo de San Marcos in St. Augustine. Karen Stanford.
1: The state of Florida acquired a site in 1983, so archaeology could happen. And so what they began doing over that period of time is discovering that there was a lot more here than just the fort, which everybody knew the fort was here. Because even though it was burned, there's a lot of mass and people always knew. They never, it wasn't a lost mission. And so, but what they discovered was it was a far more ambitious than than just the fort, basically. Uh, I remember Bonnie McEwen, who is the research director, Dr. McEwen, said that when they first found the Convento, which is the priest's residence, they thought it was the church because they didn't expect a big church to be here. And then when they continued excavations, they found right next door was the Franciscan Church, which actually was the same size as the uh, church in St. Augustine at the time. So they realized that this was more than just a mission, a small mission. And then when they discovered the council house, which is the uh, chief's uh, main, not residence, but where he held power, uh, it is the largest building discovered archaeology. Logically, in the southeast. And it is probably the premier building here because, again, you're not going to see that kind of structure anyplace else. And we're the only reconstructed mission in the southeast as well.
0: In December 2009, Mission San Luis opened a new visitor center which dramatically changed the visitor experience. Previously, visitors would enter the mission grounds from the opposite side, walking up a steep hill from the parking lot.
1: One thing that's different is we have a brand new facility, a Visitor Center facility, and it's located right off of Tennessee Street, which is Highway 90, which means we're a lot more visible to the public. Uh, Our gates announce that something's here, and we have our sign right down there, a lot of traffic flow. Uh, The Visitor Center itself is wonderful. because it allows us, we have a theater that can seat 125, which means we can accommodate at least two busloads of children, uh, and they get to watch the orientation film, and there's also uh, an expanded exhibit area that they can look at the objects and artifacts and drawers and and get a better orientation to what they're going to see outside, because Outside is a living history museum, and it needs a little explaining so that you kind of know what you're going to get when you walk out on the
0: landscape. After touring the exhibits of archaeological discoveries and watching the orientation film, visitors to Mission San Luis walk out into a living history plaza to interact with people portraying Spanish soldiers, friars, Apalaches, or blacksmith Guillermo Montoya. I'm uh, pumping the bellows. These are Spanish-style dual concerto bellows and you pump them back and forth one at a time to pump oxygen into the fire. I'm uh, checking this piece to see how hot it is. Since you judge by color, you gotta sometimes pull it out of the fire. Y'all can see that's just a dull red. So it's soft, but it's not soft enough to hammer on right now. This is a worm for the um, cannon. So, Yeah, we made one
3: yesterday, and so we're just going to go ahead and plan on the second cannon uh, sometime soon. So this is what you use to, to after you fire, to clean out any extra wadding that's stuffed down in the cannon or uh, carbonized powder, uh, just junk down in the barrel.
0: Eventually, the bellows heat the metal to a point where the blacksmith can fashion his tools. Even when the sound of 21st century emergency vehicles encroach on the serenity of Mission San Luis, the visitor can enjoy a sense of what life was like here in the second half of the 17th century. Along with the reconstructed two-story fort, one of the highlights of Mission San Luis is the church. Karen Stanford.
1: It's basically a large, has a large nave with the altar, and there's actually, one of the interesting things I found is that there's a pulpit with a sounding board above it for that the uh, bishop uses when he comes over, uh, the current bishop, when he comes over and does Mass in, in December. And then there's a, uh, we found a, uh, burnt, broken pieces of limestone, and that, uh, we've recreated that, uh, baptismal font and that sort of thing. We know there was a choir loft, because that was in the records, where the uh, Native American men and boys would, uh, sing, and were said to have voices of angels when, um, the people heard them. And so you had a, a really neat structure that, no, no, uh, benches or chairs. They stood for the entire mass, and these were not short masses, uh, basically, um, the priest, of course, would stand up front and um, talk to uh, talk to his um, his uh, flock. Uh, lots of pictures. You had a fairly largely illiterate population, and that included Spanish and Appalachian. Um, so you had pictures to uh, sort of. Illustrate the lesson.
0: The building that dominates Mission San Luis was not conceived of by the Spanish. The Apalachee Council House is a large round building, 140 feet in diameter, with a thatched sloped roof that touches the ground. Sleeping alcoves surrounding the central space allowed the Apalachee chief to entertain visitors traveling from great distances. An oculus in the ceiling illuminates the space inside the structure.
1: I always tell groups when I'm walking around, it's like just take. Take that concept out of your head of primitive, because there's nothing primitive about that structure. Structurally, it's very sound. We've had structural engineers look at it, and the way the the, the large central timbers are placed in the ground and how the support supporting timbers lay over them, is 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 a very sound building, and it um, it is incredibly, yeah. Maybe they didn't have a system of um, of um, you, Meters and feet and that sort of thing, but everything was very precise. um, And you'll, you know, people will see it when they come here, and it's an absolutely beautiful structure covered in thatch with a large central opening. Where in the in days when we could have a fire, which we can't do that now, but the fire would have the smoke from the chimney would have been seen for miles and miles as people are traveling from Saint Augustine to Mission San Luis. So you have just like I said, a very large structure, probably. Could hold two to three thousand people during big events. Uh, a higher bench for the chief and his advisors, and then uh, around as other rings of benches, lesser, lesser notables. Um, Lots of lots of activity always going on, and what I'd love someday to do is just get some idea, maybe with a, a sound recording, like bring up the sound. What would it sound like with two to three thousand people in there? What would it smell like with a giant fire roaring? And just you know, what would it have been like with both Appalachian and Spanish being spoken? Because uh, uh, the Spanish would also go into the council house. It was kind of the community center for the whole village, and so um, I, I th- again, you know, I think when people come here, they like. It's a beautiful, peaceful site, and has got a lot of spirituality about it, but it's the council house that sticks out in your mind, because you may have seen the fort in in St. Augustine or other forts. You may have seen other churches. You may have seen little Waddled and daub Spanish houses, but this is the one that's going to really knock your socks off. And the funny thing is, too, it's a large building from the outside, but you don't You don't anticipate the volume it contains until you walk into the building. So there's always that aha moment when the school kids take the little short door and their their faces come up and they see and it's like, you know, it takes their breath away.
0: Karen Stanford is Museum Program Supervisor at Mission San Luis in West Tallahassee. The Living History Museum features recreations of buildings that were burned by the former residents in 1704 to keep them from being captured in an English raid. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brotmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to shop for great books about Florida history and culture, look at historic photographs, find out about great events like our annual meeting and symposium, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. If you click on the Join Now button and become a member of the Florida Historical Society, you'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. Check us out at myfloridahistory.org.
3: In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History
4: features historian Michael Gannon. Two centuries before Franciscan friars established the celebrated Indian missions of California, Catholic priests of the same order of St. Francis of Assisi founded the nation's first mission chains here in Florida. Beginning with Mission Nombre de Dios, meaning Name of God, at St. Augustine, Franciscan friars built missions north in coastal Florida and along the Georgia coastal islands. Then, in 1606, a friar from Nombre de Dios named Martin Prieto traveled west-southwest into the interior Tumukua native province of Potano, near present-day Gainesville. There he built a small wood-and-thatch mission chapel that he named San Francisco de Potano. It was the first use of the name San Francisco in our country. When, after a fierce tropical storm, only Martin's cross-topped chapel remained standing, The whole Potano people asked to become Christians. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon. This Moment in
3: Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida.
0: You're listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Janie Gould talked recently with people reminiscing about Edgartown, an historic community in southeast Florida.
5: Before Fort Pierce came along, a nearby village called Edgartown was thriving. It was just north of what is now downtown Fort Pierce. An Illinois couple named Alfred and Lucinda Lagao laid out the plan for the town in 1887. Edgartown apparently had a great deal of promise until the railroad came through. The new railroad station was built farther south, near a cannery. That area was dubbed Can Town. Later, it was renamed Fort Pierce and it absorbed Edgartown. Now, though, another Illinois transplant has settled in the Edgartown area. Keith Lustig, a retired Chicago teacher, bought a house on North 2nd Street that Charles and Elizabeth McCarty built in 1910. Lustig's two-story frame house now has bright tropical colors. Baskets of yellow lantana practically say welcome as they hang from the posts of the wraparound porch.
2: The first time I came through this little area called Edgar Town, I just was fascinated. It was kind of a love affair with a house. Did a contract and it was mine within 48 hours. I wanted this house.
5: This house was the original McCarty house, not the one close to the courthouse got a beautiful Key West style patio. You did a lot of this yes. yourself.
2: Oh yes. By the end of the week I had no fingerprints left. They kind of rubbed off. I didn't want it all to be perfect. I wanted it to look like it had been here a hundred years. I like to say that what I did here was a preservation not really a restoration.
5: And you built the patio around a beautiful uh, I hope I'm right strangler fig. Banyan.
2: They estimate that these two banyans are about 100, 150 years old.
5: We're standing out here in the middle of the afternoon and it's so breezy and night. Nice.
2: We've had several people Will tell us this area where we put the patio is a natural hammock right where the fence is at the back there that's where the indian river used to be in the early 60s is when they did all the landfill and put in everything east of here where the community center is and the bacchus and the manatee center all of that is landfill
5: So this originally was on the water or real close to the water.
2: 50 years ago this was riverfront property.
5: It was originally
2: a boarding house. It was. They did an interesting thing for the time they put the deed in Lizzie McCarty's name so that she would be a landed woman should anything happen to her husband. The McCartys eventually rented it out and the same people had it rented for 40 some years. The urban legend is that it was a boarding house for the Flagler Railroad folks and for the fishermen. Upstairs the doors all still have the numbers on them.
5: Keith Lust a member of Fort Pierce's Historic Preservation Board says researching Edgartown's history poses a challenge. There
2: aren't a lot of artifacts. I finally have found one photograph that, with a magnifying glass, you can decipher this house. They did finally get a post office. I want to say 1902, 1904.
5: There was an Edgartown post office.
2: Yeah. Someday I'm going to find something with a postmark from Edgartown. I think that would be great.
5: What is it about Edgartown that made you want to live here?
2: I think the fact that it is a good section of town that still is intact, I think we have to stabilize it. I'm so afraid if it doesn't get stabilized soon that we're going to lose it. There's a lot of houses that are, you know, either up for sale now or I think there's a couple in foreclosure. We've got some zoning issues. But he sees
5: Edgartown as a historic gem.
2: Because Edgartown was never an area of higher economic status, there was never a lot of money to redo things. So we have structures that are historically accurate. Like your house. I'd guesstimate the house is about 85% original.
5: And it hasn't been destroyed by fire or floods or anything like that. No, it
2: has to have withstood numerous hurricanes. The roof is original.
5: The roof is original.
2: They are tin tiles, not the tin sheets. They were retinned, I guess, about seven years ago. They poured hot tin over them and sealed them again.
5: That was Keith Lustig. Janie Gould
0: from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society.
5: brings me round and get to find I'm not the man that think I am at home Oh no, no, no I'm a rocket man Rocket man Burning out his fuse are am very long
0: As the Space Shuttle Program comes to a close, Bill Dudley talks with scholars studying the history of Cape Canaveral. Four,
6: three, two, one... If you study modern history, you realize how much of the imagery of what those times looked like is built around rockets and space and exploring outer space. We had an awful lot of science fiction being written at that time as well that created a fantasy literature about the space
3: flight. Florida International University historian Kenneth Partido and American Institute of Physics associate historian Orville Butler. Their book, A History of the Kennedy Space Center, is a story that begins in the halcyon post-World War II years, when industry was booming, new homes were being built for the burgeoning families of the baby boom, and Floridians were seeing the swampy land around Cape Canaveral transformed into a testing ground for some of the first American rockets and missiles.
6: At that time, there was this notion that the future of warfare was going to be a warfare of rockets.
3: But less than a year after the Russians launched the first Earth satellite in October 19th, 1957, President Dwight Eisenhower signed a bill creating NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, a non-military agency for the purpose of space exploration. It seemed like a dream come true for Americans growing up with the notion that science and technology held all the answers. That was the future. I mean, the future was going to be that by now we'd be
6: You know, we'd all have personal rocket ships, or at least we'd have bases on the moon and Mars, and
3: we'd be going further out into space. By 1962, the space race was in full swing. President John Kennedy had challenged the country to put a man on the moon, and NASA was building the installation that would eventually be named the Kennedy Space Center. Its purpose is to
6: prepare and launch vehicles that are going to go into space. It's not where the missions are planned. It's not where the rockets are designed and built. It's really kind of an industrial operation. And that's something that I tried to bring out in the book. I mean, getting into space involves a lot of heavy lifting on Earth, wrench turning and bolt tightening, all of the least glamorous side of rocket science, and that gives it a down to earth culture. I mean, they watch the rocket rise, but that's it. Once that's done, you know, their job is over. They're concerned about making sure that everything fits together right, that everything's sealed, doing all the detail work that makes sure that it's going to work when it's up there in space.
3: Throughout the 1960s, the space program brought thousands of young men and women to the area, many from rural backgrounds and fresh out of southern colleges. You know, here
6: they are, leaving the farm, coming to this brand new facility being carved out of the, you know, really sleepy part of Florida, I mean, the, the Cape Canaveral area. So in, in some sense, it's this transformation of them as people from uneducated rural south to a modern technological industrial world. It's the transformation of the landscape, literally, what had been orange groves and palm trees. You can just see the pictures of the bulldozers coming in and just leveling everything to create launch pads and towers and that huge vehicle
3: assembly building.
2: Liftoff. We have a liftoff on Apollo 11.
3: But even as the drama of manned spaceflight reached its peak on July 16, 1969, launch day for Apollo 11, not all the country embraced the view shared by most Floridians and NASA workers. One of the things I discovered was
6: that if you look at public opinion polls, I mean, right up to the day of launch, right up to the launch of Apollo 11, barely 51% of the American public thinks going to the moon is a good use of money. They're kind of fascinated with it, but there's always this other
3: side of, well, like, why are we doing that? Just six years later, the Apollo program and boom times on the Space Coast were over. Many left the state as space-related jobs dried up and the area took an economic hit.
6: Once we won the quote-unquote race to the moon, there was nobody left to race with people were no longer concerned that we were going to be first. There's a kind of soul searching, I think, within the members of the space community as to what their purpose is. And in one sense, they they did what they were asked to do, which was to get to the moon before the Russians. And they did it. And it's, you know, it is one of the great American success stories. When Kennedy says, go to the moon, no one has any idea how they're going to do it. And eight years later, there they are. And then there's sort of told, in essence, to go away. We're cutting the program,
3: we're not flying to the moon anymore. The next few years marked a period of transition for both NASA and Central Florida, one that would last until April 1981, the launch of America's first space shuttle. A History of the Kennedy Space Center is published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.